taken from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. You can find this reading on page 833 of the Pew Bible. In the 15th year of the region of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, he wrote the track of Galilee, his brother Philip the track of Etoria, and Tranitus and Lysanias the track of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For all, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share them, should share the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, do not extort money and do not accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laith, for opening the word for us. Um, as we dive into the text that was just read for us, um, we're going to have an outline on the screen, but I do encourage you to have either a Bible or, or a device with the words open before you, um, as we will be referring to the passage as we go through it. But first, I think it's good that we pray and ask God to illumine our minds and our hearts to his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to reveal who you are and that your spirit has inspired these words to that end, that we would get to know who you are, Jesus, and we ask that you would send your spirit upon us, 
and illumine our hearts and minds that we would understand what's been read for us and that we would live in the reality of which they speak as never before. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In the summer of 1958, Princess Margaret, the sister of Queen Elizabeth, was doing a royal tour through Canada. And she came to Toronto as part of that tour. And so to prepare for this visit, you can imagine the city was in a buzz. There was lots to do to get ready for the royal visit. But there was one big obstacle, and that obstacle was the Don River. The Don River was really dirty. And so an editorial in the Globe and Mail, which is one of our local papers, from July 30th, 1958, said this, the Don River has waters heavily polluted and laden with scum. Its banks littered with all varieties of filth and the whole sending up foul odors. The city had been scrambling. Workmen had been sent out to clean up the banks. Painters to give the bridge a fresh coat. What, however, were they going to do about the stink? And you know what they did? You're not going to believe this. The solution in this time long before David Suzuki or environmental impact studies was simple. Mask the stink. They poured in chlorine. And according to some reports, gallons and gallons of perfume upstream, timed to be carried by the slow current to the park area just as the princess was crossing the bridge. This somewhat comical and misguided story shows us how when someone of royalty comes to town, you have to prepare the way, right? You have to prepare the way. That is true today, and that is true in the ancient world as well. And what Luke is doing here in in our passage this morning is John the Baptist is being portrayed as the person who goes ahead of the king to prepare the way. As we saw in the video, Luke has been building anticipation by telling the stories of John's birth and of Jesus' birth. And that birth is surrounded with hope and expectation that, that somehow God is doing a great thing, the great thing in history, in these babies. A king is coming and John goes ahead to prepare the way. How then does John prepare the way for the king? It's not by dumping perfume into the river or whitewashing the walls or making things just seem like they're okay. Look at verse two, if you have your Bible open in the second half. It says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So, So John's in the wilderness And we're not sure what the word is that comes to him, but it's probably his mission briefing. It's God saying, here's what you're going to do. And we read on. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the way that John prepares the way for this king 
is that he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's just look at a couple of these words because uh, we may not uh, fully understand what they mean. First of all, the word baptism. That's a word that simply means immersion, to, to dunk something into water. And so John is by the Jordan River, dunking people into the water. And what's interesting to note is that for Israel, baptism was a rite that they had people who wanted to convert to Judaism. So, so Gentiles, people out of the faith, who they called God-fearers, who wanted to worship with Israel, those people would be baptized to enter into Israel's worship. And the idea is this, that outsiders are unclean and they need to be washed before they come inside. Now here's John proclaiming a baptism, not to Gentiles, but to Israel. God's people, the children of Abraham, the people who had always viewed themselves on the inside, all of a sudden this crazy guy in the wilderness is telling them that they need washing, that, that they need a baptism. It's a bit provocative, don't you think? The second word, it's a baptism of repentance. Repentance means a change of mind but not just uh, the intellectual mind, not just a, a nod in my mind, but an actual change at the core of my being in, in the decision-making center, in the direction of my life. Repentance is about knowing that you've been going in the wrong direction, and it's this willed change of direction to turn around and go the other way. So John is preparing the way for the king by telling people, that they need to repent and make a new beginning. That repentance is how you prepare for the king. And then in verse four, Luke says, as it is written, and this is Luke whispering in our ear saying, dear reader, this is who Isaiah the prophet was talking about. He's connecting what's going on now with what had come before in Israel's own history, in the prophetic writings. Dear reader, this is who Isaiah was talking about, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And then there's this poem that comes from the book of Isaiah. And I want you to hear these words. I want you to picture these words. I want you to imagine these words says, every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all people will see God's salvation. Isn't that a beautiful poem? Isn't that beautiful? But what's it saying to us? What are we supposed to get out of this poem? It's a picture of creation, right? There's mountains, valleys, rough places, crooked places. But it's a picture of creation repenting. You see that? It's a picture of creation repenting. The mountains change direction and they're lowered. The valleys change their direction and they're raised up. The crooked become straight. The rough, smooth. They are repenting 
because of the coming of the king. Because all people will see God's salvation. The king who's coming is the king of creation. He's the king before whom creation bows and makes way. That's how we prepare for the coming of this king, through repentance. Now, let's take a look at what John says in verses 7 to 14. And by the way, if you think that him preaching a baptism to Israel was provocative, just wait, it's going to get really hot really soon. In 7 to 14, John starts this short sermon, and this sermon begins and ends with judgment. He, by, he begins by calling the crowds who have gathered, and I don't recommend doing this if any of you speak in public or you, you give sermons or lead Bible studies. What John does, I do not recommend doing. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers. And then he likens them to snakes fleeing a brush fire, right? Snakes kind of slithering away because they sense that the forest is on fire, and then the sermon ends with another image, the image about an axe ready to cut down any tree that doesn't grow fruit. And the idea is clear. What John's saying is that a time is coming for judgment. A time is coming for judgment. And it may be that some of his audience was offended, right? It may be that some of them were like, oh, I don't want to listen to this. I'm going to walk out or I'm going to pause the sermon. Um, Oh, wait, they couldn't do that. They were in the wilderness. (laughs) He had them. (laughs) It may be that some of them were offended, but you don't get that sense in the story, do you? It seems to be the case that they actually recognize that John is there after the manner of Israel's prophets and that he's speaking to the nation as a whole. He's not like leveling personal attacks against these people. He's addressing the nation of Israel that had entered into a special covenant relationship with the living God. And he's addressing them in this way because for those of us who know the, the Old Testament story, how did Israel do in keeping kind of its side of the covenant with God? How did Israel do? This is not a, quick, uh, a trick question. You can give me a nod or a shake of the head. How did they do? I'm seeing some shit. Yeah, they did not do well. They did not do well in upholding their end of the covenant. They failed big time over and over. And so you look at the writings of Isaiah or the other prophets, and they're writing because Israel has been unfaithful and taken to injustice and, and worshiping idols. And, and what, you, what becomes clear is that this group of people who are supposed to live in special relationship with God and to actually reflect God in the world is not at all doing that. They look no different than the world. Isaiah 1 paints a clear picture for us, says, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. 
They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So when John brings his message, this preaching of a baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, these people seem to hear it, don't they? They don't turn tail and run, they hear it. And like the prophets of old, John doesn't leave them without hope. The need of the hour is simple, and this comes in the middle of the sermon. What does he say there in the middle, in in verse eight? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You, You can't just rely on your ethnicity as Abraham's children anymore. You need to turn around, and you need to live a different life. So that's Israel. They've turned their backs on God, and John is is really in the desert. He's starting a renewal movement. He's calling people to turn back to God and prepare the way for God's king through repentance. And people seem to hear it. We'll see later in verses 10 to 14 that people respond, and they're like, teacher, what should we do? But for now, I want to camp out on the fact that we live in a different time and place from when John was speaking, don't we? Right? We're not in first century Middle East. We are here in Canada in 2019. And our cultures are very different. They might have had kind of this internalized story of their people to make sense of John's call, but our culture doesn't, and sometimes we maybe don't either. Because the reality is, is we have, uh, I think we have a great obstacle to hearing any kind of message of repentance today. And it's the obstacle that comes from the fact that we live in the age of options, don't we? We live in the age of options. And this can pose a great obstacle for us as followers of Jesus, who are called to turn to Jesus daily welcoming him into our lives, seeking his will for our lives. So every day, you and I are bombarded and confronted with all these choices to make, right? Is it gonna be Apple or Windows? Is it gonna be Apple or Android? Is it gonna be plain normal apples or like local organic apples? Um, Our coffee maker broke a couple weeks ago. And I feel like it used to be you could go to the store and buying a coffee maker was simple, but now you go to the store and you have this slew of options before you. Is your coffee, coffee maker gonna be smart? Is it gonna be voice controlled? Is it gonna grind your coffee for you? Is it gonna froth your milk? Can you make a cappuccino with it? See what I'm saying? Apples and coffee makers, those are really silly examples. But what living in a culture that is just inundating us with choices does to us is it communicates us, to us each day that we are the center and that our choices rule the day, right? That our choices get to rule the day. And in a sense, they kind of do because Google and Apple and Facebook all know all of our habits and they take that information and they, they sell it off 
and companies actually cater their marketing and their advertising to sell us stuff. Now that's a scary thought. But what living in this kind of environment can do to us uh, on a more subtle level when it comes to faith is when we have this sense every day that my choice is what really matters and that I get to choose in everything, then I should also get to choose in matters of faith, right? So you know the store, store Build-A-Bear, right? Where you get to go and you get to build a customized bear. Well, I feel like today in the religious marketplace, it's build, build a belief. Everyone, you get to go out there in, into kind of the spiritual marketplace and you get to build a belief and cobble together a belief that fits you. And we can do this too in subtle ways with Jesus. As Christians, you know, we can start to read the parts of the Bible that really seem to speak to us. Um, And we can leave the rest. We can pick out what sits well with us and we can choose to not engage with parts of scripture or parts of Jesus' life or his teaching or his deeds that, that make us uncomfortable. You know, for example, maybe you like the Jesus who's here to preach good news to the poor. You love the Jesus who's here to like, you know, take it to the, the powers that be, right? And, and he does that. But as soon as Jesus starts to talk about his high standard for, for sexual purity, Maybe that gets like too close to you and you're like, okay, I'm down with that Jesus, but not this Jesus. So you keep him at arm's length. Or maybe some of us really like the Jesus who teaches this really high moral standard. But when Jesus comes to us as the one who eats with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and dirty people, we're like, ooh, that's just too messy for me. Jesus, that's too messy for me. See what I mean? We love the Jesus that makes us comfortable. But we can push Jesus away as as soon as what he says starts to, to poke at our own idols, starts to poke at our own areas of insecurity, starts to poke at places where we're not living for him. And by the way, that's why we do sermon series like this. That's why we preach through large sections of the Bible. Because we want it all. We want to get the full picture. We want to get the full gospel. So this morning, I want you to know, in the age of options, just, just question the narrative. Question the narrative that you always get to choose. And go, is that really what Jesus wants for me? Or does Jesus want me to to get to know him in his fullness? Does Jesus want me to trust him that he's good even when he says hard things to me? Because remember who John is preparing the way for. He's preparing the way for the king, right? And the deal with the king is that, you know, he's the king. And if we really want to follow Jesus, if we're really serious about becoming a new kind of people who have good news to bring to the world, 
then we need to kick the habit of, of seeing Jesus and his life as this different set of options that we can pick and choose and put on our plate. That's not how it works with a king. What makes him king is that he's in charge and we prepare the way for him. So how should we kind of hear John's fiery sermon this morning? I think it's helpful to think of John's preaching like an alarm clock. So you know in the morning when your alarm clock goes off, it's harsh and it's obnoxious, you know, when you're half asleep and dazed and and it's there to rouse you and wake you up. And do you like your alarm clock at that moment? Let's be, we can be honest, folks. Do we like our alarm clock when it wakes us up at 6 a.m.? I don't. I don't like it. But if it weren't jarring, if it weren't obnoxious, then it wouldn't be doing its job. It wouldn't wake me up. Because what I really need is not to just like keep on sleeping well into the morning. My wife is nodding her head. She's like, he does not need that. He needs to get up and help me with the kids right now. What I need is to wake up. What I need is, is, is to prepare to get ready. John's like that alarm clock. He's out in the wilderness going off, clamoring for people to wake up to the moment, to wake up to the reality of sin and of evil and and that we've been complicit in it and to wake up to the reality that it's time for the king to come and he's gonna retake the world and he's gonna make all things new And I need to turn away from the direction that I've been heading and I need to turn back to this king. I need to prepare the way for this king to come into my life and make me new as well. We need to remember that John isn't just bringing a message of judgment. He's bringing an invitation into forgiveness. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As in, that's what God wants. That's what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to come and receive his pardon. And and it's not like God is offering this pardon and this grace begrudgingly. He doesn't have it in in a tightly closed hand. He's arms wide open, actively sending out the invitation to turn and enter in to his forgiveness. Listen to this in Isaiah 45. This is God's heart and he's speaking to this rebellious Israel and here's God's heart. He says, turn to me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Again, in Isaiah 30, this is stunning. Isaiah 30, verse 18, says this, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait 
for him. That's God's heart. That's God's heart. He longs to show his grace to us. Repentance means that you're not too far gone. Repentance means that the issues that you face in your life aren't so great that God can't still call you back to himself. Repentance is good news. Repentance is good news. And you can see in our passage that repentance is practical. It is practical. It's not just this sentimental feeling about, you know, feeling miserable for ourselves or wallowing in our failures. That's not going to help anything. Repentance is, is really about action. It's a call to action. Whether we have repented and are continuing in the way of repentance is going to be shown in our, in our doings, in that repentance fruit that comes when we live in this way. And the crowds that John is talking to understand this, right? They hear his message and, and look at how they respond in verse 10. In verse 10, they say, what should we do then? The crowds asked. In other words, they understand that what John is saying to them demands a response. And it's gonna change how they live if, if they accept this news and if they go, yes, the king is coming and I wanna prepare for him, it's gonna mean change in their life. And so to the crowds, look at what John says. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to be relentless in showing his care for the poor. He is going to be relentless in showing his, cares, his care for matters of justice. And that following Jesus is going to mean reflecting God's generosity in the ways that John's telling them. If you have an abundance of something and you know people who don't, share with them. Get this, tax collectors, right? The worst of the worst, the hated people in Israel come to John saying, what should, what should we do? And he says, quit defrauding people. Quit asking for more taxes. And again, soldiers come to John. Notice that these people are on the fringe, that the normal Israelite would look at a tax collector and go, ooh, I want nothing to do with you. The normal Israelite would look at a soldier and go, I, I want nothing to do with you. And this soldier says, what should I do? And John says, stop extorting people for money. Be happy with what you're paid as a soldier. Quit shaking people down. Repentance is tangible and practical. It's not a one-size-fits-all deal. It's specific to each one of us. But repentance does call us to think about the ways that we've become enmeshed in injustice or in evil and the wrong things in our life. And that we need to stop, that we need to turn around from that. Because what we're gonna discover as, as Luke goes on is that there is no place for injustice and evil in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of this king, there's no room for it. 
As we get ready to land the plane, I want to read you part of a story about a character in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. And in those books, there's a boy named Eustace Scrub. And if you know the books, you know that Eustace is just a horrible little boy. <laughs> he is a canker sore of a person. And in the part that I'm going to read uh, to you from, Eustace has just gone through a transformation. His life was going one way, and he has been turned around, and he is going the other way. And he's talking to his cousin, Edmund, about this transformation. It says this, I looked up. Oh yeah, and I need to mention, Eustace had been a dragon. So go with me on this. Use your imagination. This is children's literature. It's beautiful. Eustace had been turned into a dragon, and now he has been undragoned. And he's telling Edmund about how that came to be. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good, because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? asked Edmund. I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around the, red, the, the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going into it. The water was clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said that out loud or not. I was just going to tell the lion that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast off their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place and then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off, here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped right out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. 
Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, but they hadn't hurt And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled banana and started, uh, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. Why do I share this story? Because in this story, this boy Eustace slowly comes to realize his need to turn back to the lion and to let the lion undress him. To let that lion take that thick, ugly dragon skin off. And that's a vulnerable thing, right? I think that's one of the reasons why maybe we don't like repentance because it forces us to see the ugliness and stink in our own lives and then to come clean about it. But as John here calls us to do something about it, we need to remember that we're not alone. Maybe like Eustace in your life, you've been trying to do it alone. You've been trying to do some self-improvement or to deal with that bad habit, but you haven't really turned to Jesus in the midst of that struggle. Maybe you've been trying to do the work of just scratching layer and layer off, but nothing seems to change, and you can't undragon yourself. Because it's often the case that when we try to clean ourselves up without turning to Jesus, we're only scratching at the surface. We're, We're only dumping chlorine and perfume into the river. 
nothing's really going to change. We need a deeper work that only God can do. Only Jesus can undragon us. I never thought I'd say those words. But it's true. Only Jesus can undragon us. And what's being put on the table for us this morning is that maybe the way to a fruitful life, a life uh, for you where you see yourself bearing fruit and thriving, that maybe the way to that life is, is the same as the way of repentance. And that it's through repentance that you are going to prepare the way for the king to come in and do in you what only he can do. And maybe this morning, that's like for the first time. That's like a first time thing. Like you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to become one. But maybe for you, you've been a follower of Jesus for many years and, and you want to turn back to him again and realize that that's a daily thing that he calls us into. To turn to him. To seek his will. And that through this turning to him and repenting each day, he's going to bear fruit in our lives that we never thought possible. This morning, don't turn away from the good news of repentance. And would we go from here to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? I want to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a couple songs of response before we head on our way.